Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Grimm, he, him, Don Lister, she, her, and Tristan Katz, they, them. Tristan, we are delighted to have you on our podcast today. This is such an important topic that we're going to be discussing and one that I know so many of us are struggling with. So I'm excited to be um, to, to be educated and learn a little bit more and ask lots of questions. Tristan is an equity and inclusion facilitator for yoga and wellness spaces and professionals. She's working, or they are working. Already, I made a mistake. Tristan, I apologise. They are working on their first book. You have written articles for the Accessible Yoga website. We can also find your words of wisdom on your own website, and that will be in the show notes. Please do look and share. And you're currently working on an article for Yoga Journal. So there's lots of incredible stuff there that I'm really looking forward to going in and checking out. I've just been having a look through your Instagram um, just before we came onto the, the podcast, and I really recommend that you know everybody downloads your Instagram and starts following you because it's so full of really helpful easy to understand and accessible stuff so um thank you for doing the work that you're doing welcome thank you thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and thanks for having me on the show i'm really excited to be here with you all oh great so let's check in let's see how we're all doing daniel how are you this week what have you been up to give us your news well i've just i literally i've just got off of a really really interesting conference call um, that was organized by yoga campus in london and for those that don't know yoga campus they're they're europe's kind of sort of biggest yoga educator um and they own a yoga studio in um or two yoga studios in london one that actually recently closed um during the pandemic and they have educated, I would suggest, thousands of people in terms of teacher trainings, yoga therapy trainings, and then sort of supplementary trainings in different areas of yoga. And very insightfully of themselves, they realized that um, a lot of the yoga community are actually really struggling at the moment, mm. struggling in terms of not knowing about numbers, classes, studios closing down. Should you be online? Should you be in a studio? Do you work from people's homes? Do you not work from people's homes? Communities feeling very fractured and pulled apart um, that, you know, were normally pre-pandemic in a building or in a studio or in a space or in a village hall together. And this has all been pulled apart. And I think now some of the dust is starting to settle a little bit and it's where as yoga professionals educators do we take what we're doing and how do we get to people now who are so used to being able to go onto youtube and pay nothing for a yoga class to come to someone that's maybe spent thousands of pounds on training mm. that is actually really well qualified to support them in maybe the things that they're looking for and being able to build a communication and relationship with someone rather than it just being someone that is on a screen that you never, ever actually get to know anything about or be able to communicate with. And it's been such a it was I mean, it was amazing. There was about 60 people online that were all mostly UK based, a couple of people from Europe. But but people really sharing just how despairing they're feeling at the moment. 
but also recognizing that actually this is clearly a real point of evolution and change and transformation that we all need to go through as not just yoga professionals, but just individuals, just people that have jobs, people that have relationships, people that are, you know, wanting to move on from this situation that we've all been in. And I just see it's really insightful of them to, to, have, to have done that. And I, I've been feeling personally for a long time. I mean, I'm so fortunate that I have Dawn and I have a community of people that I can touch in with on a regular basis. But I know many people have felt very, very separated and very isolated. Um, so that's where I've just come from. I know it's a bit of a heavy thing to start off with, but actually it's something that's so relevant and be interesting to hear what either of you think about that situation. Tristan, do you want to say something? Sure. Um, I mean, listening, Daniel, to everything you just shared brings up a lot of grief for me, to be totally honest. Like, I feel like one of the things I have missed the most in COVID is my in-person yoga practice and community. And um, I haven't found my way back to my practice um, in the way that it was pre-COVID, you know? Um, I, I am uh, struggling with overworking and not carving out time um, for my physical asana practice. I'm, you know, missing um, having a teacher <laughs> in the space with me um, and, and being on the computer and Zoom isn't the same. Um, you know, I, I was practicing with a lot of like vinyasa music style teachers and, you know, it, I, it's just not the same when I'm alone. Um, and more recently, I've finally found my way into being my own teacher, um, like in a consistent way for the first time in, well, my <laughs> whole life, um, which is a gift and, and offering so much richness and still I miss I'm really, really missing and grieving uh, uh, the community aspect. So it, it's interesting to hear you describe that and to know, you know, many of us are struggling with so many different parts of this pandemic. And many of us who are in the, the community of yoga, the practice of yoga are having this exact same experience, right? Um, and some of it is is wonderful and empowering and, and, you know, giving you independence and giving you insight into your body in a new way um, because we're not comparing ourselves to other people on the mat or worried about what a teacher might be thinking about our alignment or, you know, there's so many different wonderful aspects to this and it is, it's very isolating and it's really prompting me to reflect on how much um, yoga has been a source of connection and, and community and friendship and, um, and support, social support, right? Um, and not just a personal practice. Um, so hearing you describe that brings up a lot of grief for me. So I'll, I'll share that, which is just very much like always alive at this point in time. And even though folks in the, in the States are going back to in-person classes, mostly like vaccination only, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, a divide uh, among, you know, who believes in vaccinations and who doesn't and, you know, um, some disagreements and, and arguing and not seeing eye to eye on, on, on where the teachings apply to that conversation too. Um, so yeah, it's a really, it's just a lot of a time. Yeah. I really hear you. I feel similarly. I think grief is a great word. Yeah. I feel a huge amount of sadness for what was lost um, 
and we're in that horrible space between aren't we mm-hmm. and I think the space between can be a really interesting space I use the space between myself a lot as how I process I kind of spend a lot of time accumulating information and getting to know how I feel about it in my body and in my mind and I might write about it not for anybody to see just for myself and I'll spend a long long time in that in-between space trying to understand what needs to happen before I move forwards with anything in my life and then I take action. But I feel like in the in-between space right now, there's there's no clear path coming forward for me because what I'm feeling is what you spoke about is those great fractures in our community. Um, you know, I kind of always like to feel like the yoga community was quite kind and quite loving. And it doesn't feel quite like that anymore. It feels quite polarized. Obviously not in everywhere, but in a lot of ways it's polarized. As you say, this pro and anti-vax situation and there's so much fear around it and huge amounts of judgment but I I do believe I really believe that out of this kind of in-between space that we're all sitting in that we can create something better because there is so much that actually we we probably and I, I, I would put my hand up and say I was guilty of this sitting in my little privileged space that I was inhabiting of not really seeing the suffering of others and not using my practice fully in the way that I should have been. Mm-hmm. So my practice was very internalized. And whilst I would say, I used to use the expression, which I wouldn't use now, you know, we're all one. Mm-hmm. And I now think, well, Christ, we never were. <laughs> you know, we really never were. All right, on some spirit level, you know, on our soul level, we're all energy. I get that. I know that I feel that. And that was probably really what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. But yoga has to be action. It can't just be an internal process or it's dead. You know, mm-hmm. we aren't floating around as disembodied beings. We're embodied beings in a world that is fractured and deeply, deeply divided and unfair for so many people. Therefore, our practice has got to have an element for me of social justice. Therefore, this in-between space feels like nothing I've known before in my life, where I'm suddenly having to come to terms with the incredible injustice in the world and in our community. And how am I going to use my platform, whatever that looks like, to change things for the community going forward? And that's got to start with me. And then from that place of deeper understanding and wisdom, go forwards. And I feel a little bit it's not a comfortable place to be in, is it? Really not comfortable. Because I keep looking at myself and thinking, oh my God, you know, you need to do more and you need to watch your language. You need to think about, you know, how your behavior impacts on other people. And even when I was teaching this morning, I, I said something, I, I think I offered a pose in a different way. But the way I said it, I knew as soon as it came out of my mouth, it compared this next step to being better which of Mm. course it isn't but it was just all that stuff around language that we've all used for years and years and years especially for as old as me suddenly I can see the wisdom in changing it but it's hard it's hard to change it isn't it Mm. yeah I, I, you know, I, I, I could jump right in. <laughs> like there is so much you said there, Don, that is important, you know, um, I, you know, the, 
the teaching that we are all one is is true, right? We are all made of the same stardust. We are all um, bones and blood and and flesh. Um, and given the nature of our structures and world, we're all having very different experiences depending on our identities because our identities impact our experiences. Um, and we can't, we can't turn that off or separate that. And when we come into a yoga space, we're carrying that truth in our bodies. And in my, what I have witnessed is some of us were having this conversation before COVID more people have come into the conversation during COVID, which is wonderful. And there's still so much more conversation to be had and more learning and more unlearning. And in this process, we are at this in-between space, this like transition space, this unknowing space, which is inherently uncomfortable and, um, and, and, and there's a lot of uncertainty and, and <laughs> the practices of yoga prepare us for this if we choose to lean into them and trust that they can hold us, right? Like we've been preparing for this moment um, through the lens of asana even. Like on our mats, we learn to discern between pain and discomfort and how to be in the discomfort and how to feel the sensation of our feet on the ground or our breath moving through our bodies as a way to stay close to our experience and stay present and not disconnect or dissociate or, or leave the pose early because we just want to go into child's pose, though that's totally valid too, right? We learn how to care for ourselves um, on the mat. And how can we take that learning process off the mat and into this COVID moment, right? This COVID in between uncertain moment where there's suffering and there's pain and there's loss and there's grief and there's uncertainty and there's reckoning and there's, there's awareness that we haven't some of us haven't been doing good enough, right? That there's so much more for us to do. Um, and I love you saying like the way yoga invites us into the practice of social justice, which I, I fully believe the teachings of the yamas and niyamas set us up to start to relate to what it looks like to harm other people and not just through the lens of like not eating meat, right? Which I feel like as I was growing up as a yoga student and teacher, it was all focused on ahimsa through vegetarianism. And it's like, can we go a little bit farther here as a white person? What is my role in relationship to harm, right? Um, as a trans person, what is my role when harm happens and it happens to me or I witness it happen happening to others? There are so many more conversations for us to be having about how to take these teachings into action, as you're saying, Dawn. So I just really appreciate us acknowledging like the discomfort of this moment and the like the 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 truths that we are being faced with, right? Which are really important and not easy. Um, and I just want to bring in Michelle Cassandra Johnson's name and work because I mean, honestly, if I start talking about her more, I will start crying because she's touched me so deeply and changed so much of my life. And one of the things that I hear in my head is her saying, this work isn't easy and we have to do it anyways. Um, and, and, and the next thing I hear in her voice is, and we must love ourselves into who we want to be. We can't do this work through shame, um, through um, negative self-talk. Uh, we have to understand how to care for ourselves and care for others, right? In a really deeper way than just saying we're all one. Because again, we're not all having the ex same experience. So what does it look like to understand that and live into that and, and move from a place of care, right? Oof. 
Let's go for it, Daniel. I was just going to say thank you, Tristan. That just like like you just said, it, there's so there's so many things that have kind of touched upon me. What you've just said there, and ultimately, I think the practice we're we're so fortunate as people who practice yoga to have these tools because we've got some form of life raft to fall back onto. And that life raft being something that is a bit more sustainable than, you know, some of the habits and addictions that we all use to navigate through our lives. But ultimately for me, there's uh, one of our students the other day was talking about the lotus flower and the lotus flower actually the only time it really blooms is when it lives in the dirt and the mud and the darkness for such a long time. Mm. <laughs> and it feels like we're right in the depths of that at the moment. But knowing at some point this is going to rise, this is going to change. Switches are going to start to go on in people's heads and things are going to start to shift. And we just need to sit together as individuals, but also collectively in a, as, in a harmonious ways as we can do with understandings of each other's experiences and backgrounds to actually allow a space of non-judgment for this place to grow. Mm -hmm. And that for me feels like, I think what's happened societally, but if we look at just the yoga community, it's suddenly drawing out, you know, people that are using yoga as a power dynamic, and are using it as a, as a form of abuse. People that are using it very unintelligently to, you know, make themselves feel better about themselves and using it as a way to self-promote. And then others who are actually trying to work out where they sit and then others that have gone on that stage a little bit further and they realise, actually, I've done as much work as I can do within myself. And now I now start to need to start interacting with people who challenge me <laughs> from my beliefs, my societal understandings and, you know, my education to start to test what I've learned inside. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's so much, there's so much to say about just the topic of, you know, our practice, our embodied practice being taken off the mat and into the world. I think that's an old Sian Korn um, uh, expression, isn't it? She used to say, and I, it's one I really, I really, um, I really hold dear to my heart. You know, I've always felt from very early days, there's no point in doing my practice if it didn't impact in my life. Like our yoga, as I said to someone this morning, your yoga practice in this mat is a slither of your practice. You know, we take what we learn and it's and it goes everywhere. So, you know, we there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but let's come back to one of the main things you came in to talk about was <laughs> talk to us about, and this is something that really challenged me because when Daniel brought this up to me, I think it was about a year ago, maybe a wee bit longer, about pronouns. I literally thought he was going bonkers. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't even know there was something more than more than he and her and they I just did it didn't even enter my consciousness and I immediately felt defensive that was my first thought I felt really defensive and uncomfortable and when I sat with it it's because I felt stupid mm. and I felt stupid because it was so bloody obvious actually it was well of course we don't all feel the same and of course you know 
I, you know, applying genderizing, if that's the right word, somebody's absolutely ridiculous because we all feel differently and it's a construct, you know, and the same with it. I don't know, deciding everybody who looks like a certain a female or looks like a male should be in a certain type of clothing. It's ridiculous. It's all ridiculous. And so now it's, isn't it incredible? I now feel like, isn't it incredible? We can talk about it. And mm. isn't it incredible that we can start to have these conversations? But it's taken me about a year to get there, to stop just feeling uncomfortable because I felt stupid. And so how, you know, tell, talk to us about what does this mean? How, you know, what does this mean for us in our community? What does it mean for you? You know, what, how, how can we as people who practice yoga and there'll be many people on the podcast who perhaps don't practice yoga that are just interested in this topic you know t- tell us about pronouns and why they're so important yeah um I just want to n- normalize the initial response that you had done of feeling um, defensive and uncomfortable um and how you sat with it, which is really beautiful to hear you reflect on and share and notice that underneath the discomfort um, and the defensiveness was the feeling of being stupid, right? Um, I just really appreciate mm-hmm. you naming that because I think it's a really common experience. And um, I, it's interesting, you know, uh, systems like capitalism and white supremacy and settler colonialism, which are rampant in our world, regardless of where we are geographically, um, have us, uh, have, have commodified yoga into this thing that is solely a physical practice, right? Like have many of us, um, entering yoga through the lens of asana and not understanding that there are more teachings behind, um, what yoga actually is way beyond asana. Right. And I think, um, you know, slowly we, throughout immersing ourselves in yoga spaces and yoga communities and with yoga teachers, we learn that there's more, right? At least this was my experience. Um, And and similarly, (laughs) um, my experience has been in retrospect to to recognize that these same systems, um, capitalism, white supremacy, settler colonialism, had me unconsciously and very subtly believing that gender was fixed and inherently binary. You are either this or that, a man or a woman, exclusively based on your physical anatomy and genitalia. And I didn't know this consciously, but I knew it unconsciously because it was it was just so true that it wasn't even something I could put a finger on, you know? Um, and when I say so true, I'm putting that in quotes because I've come to discover it's not true at all, right? As you said, Dawn, it's, it, gender is a construct. Um, if we look back at the history of human beings, we've actually had a wide variety of gender experiences, identities, and expressions throughout time and space. But these systems that I named earlier, settler colonialism in particular, have invisibilized and disappeared and, and removed any of those stories and narratives in order to make the gender binary seem like the only worldview. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing a quote from an educator and activist, Alok Vaid Menon. Um, so I, I want to name them and their work in this moment, because I, I much like with Michelle, I hear their voice in my head when mm. I when I talk about this. Um, and so um, it was in yoga spaces, actually, that I I started looking around and really having to contend with my own otherness. 
Um, I've been practicing yoga since I was 20. I'm, I'm about to be 40. So it's been 20 years. Um, and I always felt like an other, like an odd person. I felt like a weird kid, felt like I never fit in. Um, it wasn't anything I could put my finger on in particular. I just felt different. Um, and I know a lot of us do, particularly those of us who hold marginalized identities. And I mm -hmm. was coming to terms with my queerness as far as my sexual orientation was concerned, um, because that was a, a collective conversation, right? Like gay versus straight, lesbian, queer, pansexual, like these words were a part of the um, collective vernacular. Um, gender in my upbringing was not a part of the conversation. Um, so I moved through the, through the world being told by everyone around me, again, very subtly that I was a woman um, and believing myself to be one until I came to a moment where I started to expose myself to other truths and other stories. And as I started to watch other folks have different experiences of gender, um, transgender experiences, non-binary experiences, I thought, oh, is this what I've been experiencing my whole life? But I had no words for it and I didn't even know that it could be a possibility. I had no other option because there weren't these conversations when I was a kid and when I was growing up. And so in yoga spaces was when I really started to understand my, my feelings of otherness, my experience of otherness, because I couldn't just put it in a box somewhere. It was being shown to me all the time because I was on my mat in my body and comparing myself to other people around the room and looking at quote other women and thinking like, I don't feel like them. And so I was having to contend with this, um, this mirror on some level, right? In, in teacher training, in immersions, in workshops, in retreats. And I have been a very avid yoga student. So I have done a lot of these things. Um, and at some point along the way, I became friends with someone who opened my eyes and said, do you think you might be non-binary? And I just want to say, in general, I would not advise anybody to, to ask that of somebody else. That's not really how this works. We all have to come to that truth on our own, in our own ways. And it's not right to um, project it onto other people. But this friend saw me. She mm -hmm. saw me and she saw something in me. And, and she asked me if I had considered it for myself. Um, and around that time, this was shortly after finishing several teacher trainings and moving into the world as a yoga teacher, um, I started to question my gender identity very, very quietly. I wasn't talking to people about it. I wasn't transitioning in any um, externally facing way. I wasn't changing my name or my pronouns. Um, I was just starting to reflect, why do I feel like a woman? What makes me believe I am one? Um, what does woman mean to me? Uh, when I hear language like ma'am or she or miss or daughter, um, what do I feel in my body? And the more I watched my reactions, the more I realized I was having an aversion, but I didn't know I was having it because it, it was so normalized. And so then I started to experiment. Well, what would they them feel like? And that started feeling really good like freeing, like liberation, like healing, like reclamation, like autonomy and agency, this thing that I was not given because the, the discovery of my gender was taken from me by culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, so why are pronouns important and why are we talking about pronouns? It's because 
our world has been set up in a way that dictates our sense of ourself as far as gender is concerned. We are assigned a gender at birth based on our anatomy, based on our genitalia. And that assignment means so much for how we move through the world and grow and the things we learn and the messages we're told and the things we internalize. So to me, we're having the conversation about pronouns because people are taking their power back and they're saying, this isn't me, this is me. And this is the language I want to hear. And this is the language that feels affirming to me. This is my healing. This is my reclamation. This is me discovering who I am and telling the world who I am rather than letting the world tell me who I am in a way that doesn't fit, right? So when we come into contact with people, um, the practice here, the invitation here is to not assume to not assume, am I looking at a man or a woman because this person is wearing a suit or a dress or has facial hair or has a name that, quote, seems masculine. We need to move beyond these assumptions and challenge these neural pathways and start to watch what's happening in our brains, right, really quickly. That is all based on this underlying assumption about genitalia. Like, that's really what's going on. We're, we're not thinking what's in this person's pants, but that's informing what we are thinking, consciously mm -hmm. or unconsciously, right? Mm -hmm. And so the practice is to notice the assumptions we make about others, to slow down and question our mind and, and question how we're about to refer to somebody. The practice is to check in with people. Um, Tristan, would you remind me of your pronouns, right? Um, Tristan, what pronouns are you using these days? Um, are you still using they, them? Does that still feel comfortable for you? How would you like me to refer to you? There are so many different ways that we can check in with one another. Um, the practice is to also learn how to use, quote, non-conventional pronouns. They, them is just one of many other sets of pronouns that folks are using these days to reflect um, gender nonconformity, right? And I also want to say that, you know, pronouns aren't inherently gendered. Like just because you use he, him doesn't necessarily mean you're a boy or a man. And the same goes for she, her. We've kind of internalized this belief that like girls use she, her and boys use he, him and that's it. But we need to challenge that too, because I might use he and they. I might use he, they and she. And does this feel radical and weird? <laughs> yes. And this is the re-envisioning that we need in order to reclaim what has been lost because of the systems and cultures that have oppressed all of us. Because we're all having an experience as a result of the gender binary, right? Like women internalize things like um, diet culture, fat phobia, slut shaming, the list goes on. All of that is a result of what women, quote, are expected to be. And similarly, like we have a kind of collective conversation about toxic masculinity. Well, that's a symptom and a result of the gender binary too, right? So to me, we are being faced with a, a collective reckoning and a collective reclaiming and a collective healing if we choose to um, lean into that and, and embrace it rather than fight it because we're afraid or we're uncomfortable or we feel stupid. But how can we notice when those feelings arise and then allow ourselves to move through them so we can come out to this other side like you are describing, Don? Yeah. That was a lot, I know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was incredible. I want to like listen to it again. I will. Later. <laughs> I'll listen to it again later several times and make notes. I mean, I, for, I mean, thank you for, 
firstly for so much wisdom i found it quite moving and, and i've also um i was listening to michelle myself earlier today and and um may she made me cry is, is she is michelle she michelle yeah. uses she her yes yeah yeah. Um, so I, I was crying listening to the podcast. It was so beautiful. Yeah. And I thought I must, you know, connect with this person and, and speak to them more fully. And, and Alok and Daniel and I are just such huge fans. Mm. Amazing, 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 amazing human being uh, with such eloquence, really, to I've learned such a lot from listening to them. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really recommend that. So I, I was just, as I was listening to you, so it, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I'm, I was thinking, well, how come we all ended up with these rigid gender roles then? Like if it wasn't always the case, as I'm discovering more and more, mm-hmm. um, as we look back through history and research, is it, it, it because of capitalism, do you think? Do you think it was to do with, well, if we put, and, and also the, the male supremacy, perhaps a little, you know, I remember growing up, I grew up in um, the Jehovah's Witness cult and I hated being a girl with a vengeance. I really did. I felt so unco- I felt so not like a girl, but not because I didn't feel like a woman in my body. And I liked how my body felt, but I didn't like what being a girl meant in that space. It made me feel I had to be quiet. I had to be demure. I had to be respectful. I wasn't allowed to dream big. You know, it was like, you'll be a wife one day. You'll be a mother. You will listen to your husband. You know, you won't go to, you won't work really. You know, it was, it was all very controlled because, and, and that made me desperately try to be more like a bloke. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we might be talking entirely at cross purposes. I don't know. I'm just thinking as I was listening to you speak and I hated it. And I remember even then thinking, why do we have to be one or the other? Why can't we be whatever we want? And I very much for a long time pushed against my identity. And it's taken me a long time to like, I have long hair and I now much more celebrate who I feel I am in the past sort of 10 years or so, but a really long journey for me to, 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 to work out who I was. And I didn't ever really think about it until this moment about that, that really my gender feeling challenged within all of that. And, and so I'm wondering what, what, what's your take on it? Do you think it is a form of control? And do you think, you know, was there thought behind this? You know, do you think people actually sit there and think I'm going to try and make people feel crappy about themselves so that we can make more money. And if we keep people in that lane, then, you know, we'll be more successful as a company or, you know, it's it's that ultimate thing, isn't it? People are always buying into feeling inadequate, even in the yoga world, maybe even especially in the yoga world. I don't know. Mm. You know, Mm. you won't keep paying for workshops and retreats and classes if you're feeling really good good about yourself. You know, people sell often on the basis of something wrong, come here and we'll fix you. Buy this lotion, wear these clothes, be more like this person. Do Do you understand where I'm coming from? I do. And I mean, even what you're describing about the commodification of yoga and like, I mean, I felt it in like, I'm not wearing the right leggings, right? Like everybody else has these leggings, which cost a hundred dollars. Like that's capitalism coming into a spiritual space, right? And um, not all yoga spaces are spiritual spaces, let's say that, but, but, but yes, I think that, um, 
you know, I don't, I, I'm not a historian and I don't know if a group of individuals sat down and said, let's create two gender boxes, you know? Um, but on some level, I do think that's what happened. And I do think it is directly tied to patriarchy, to capitalism, to white supremacy and to settler colonialism. And the list goes on of other systems, right? Um, but yes, it was meant to uphold white male dominance over everybody else, right? And so women, white women were second, right? Um, women of color were like not even on the on the radar, right? Like it was it was all designed to uphold white male dominance. So the gender binary is inherently rooted in racism. It's inherently rooted in power over and in upholding and maintaining power in the hands of some at the expense and suffering of others, right? And so, Don, when you're describing like this early childhood experience of like, I don't want to be told that I'm supposed to be X, Y, and Z because I'm a woman, right? Um, there's so many things I hear in that. And, and I want to say like... Um, you know, when we think about what do I feel as far as gender, oftentimes it starts with some of these like kind of um, subtly anti-trans narratives. I'll just speak for myself. I believed or I thought that I wasn't trans because I, quote, wasn't in the wrong body. Like I internalized a belief that in order to be trans, I had to feel like my body was somehow wrong. Um, I'm discovering over and over and over again that that's garbage. Transgender just means I don't identify with the sex or gender I was assigned at birth. That's all it means. Lots of folks understand it and define it in different ways, but that's the classic definition. Cisgender means you identify with the same sex you were assigned at birth and the gender you were assigned at birth, right? So beyond that, gender expression long hair, short hair, clothing, um, style, uh, uh, a name even, isn't necessarily a gender thing, right? Gender expression is very different than gender identity. So I could be non-binary and wear dresses and have long hair and still be non-binary because it's an internal felt sense of who I am that you can't see based on my appearances and based on my expression. So, you know, when I hear you say, Dawn, like, um, I have long hair and I'm comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, I've, that's fantastic. That may or may not be a reflection of your gender identity, mm -hmm. right? And that's for each Ooh. of us to discern and decide and discover. Yeah. I, gosh, so interesting. I'm learning so much already. Oh, my brain's my brain's exploding slightly. So I get that because I really I really do get that. I my feeling is, you should be able to wear whatever you like, have your hair, makeup, however you want to look, and nobody should make a judgment about who you are based upon that. But that's hard for people. Not but and that's hard for people because we like to know. Mm -hmm. No, we don't always feel very safe if we can't put something in a box and say that belongs there and yep. that belongs there because then you don't feel comfortable and safe. And I don't, and I'm not saying that's a good thing because it's really not, but that's how we are. Daniel, I can see you want to hop in. There's also something that I think is very evident that is happening in our modern society as of now is Transgender people are being vilified in the press, in mainstream media, 
the same way gay men were during the 70s and 80s and early 90s when the gay pandemic, the um, AIDS pandemic was happening within the gay communities. And again, this is another agendarized way of white supremacy <laughs> controlling how people think. So, you know, there's, there's parallels with, you know, the way gay men were presented through mass media around being perverse, around being paedophiles, around, you know, spreading diseases or a virus that actually everybody was threatened by, you know, and that alone, I mean, you know, growing up in that environment has done such damage to me. And in every day it affects me, and and now all the, all that's happened is the story is just now being put projected onto trans people. Mm -hmm. So those same ri ridiculous stories that yes, there might be perverts that are transgender people, there might be perverts that are gay people, there might be perverts that are straight people, there are perverts everywhere, same as pedophiles everywhere. So was, you know that this whole this whole thing around just pointing pointing a torch or pointing a kind of you know a a, a story at a marginalized group of people does such damage and that is what i think and i can see is happening now and i i read a really amazing book called the transgender issue by sean fay um, who I actually, I'd mentioned it before when we speak, spoke to Jeevana um, a few weeks ago on the podcast. But um, is, that, is, that, is that something you'd like to speak more about, Tristan? Yeah. <laughs> I've probably not I, been yeah. that eloquent about how I've explained it. but it, No, yeah. <laughs> I think it was very eloquent. And I appreciate you kind of reflecting on your own experience of what I hear you describing is internalized homophobia, right? Like when something is, is, um, uh, stigmatized, marginalized, shown to be other outside of ourselves, but then we discover that that's part of our identity and experience. And then we realize we've internalized all those negative messages about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. we, consciously or unconsciously again, right? And, and, and yes, I, I think that one of the things we're witnessing is, is the, the, the mainstream media portrayal of trans stories that is inherently problematic and harmful and how that portrayal in mainstream media then bolsters um, anti-trans legislation and how that then impacts the numbers of trans people who are murdered every year, which is astronomical just to, to for them to be murdered because of their gender identity. Like that's literally what's happening. And it's because somebody's uncomfortable with it and because we have these negative portrayals, right? And 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 I also want to name that most of the folks who are being murdered every year who are trans are black and brown trans people, right? Um, so this is happening, it's like intersectionality is, is a part of this conversation because I, as a white person, am inherently having a unique experience of my transness because I move through the world as a white person first, right? Given the way our, our systems and structure and culture is designed and works. Um, people see my whiteness 
before they ever think about what my gender is, if they think about it at all. Because nine times out of 10, nine and a half times, nine and three quarters out of, out of 10, they see me and think woman, right? Um, so I'm experiencing privilege and safety because I am afforded that, that assumption of being seen as a woman and my whiteness. And then I'm experiencing invisibilization um, because they don't see what I'm actually experiencing as far as my gender is concerned, which means I'm harmed more. I have to advocate for myself more. I have to take up my space and say, no, my pronouns are they, them. Thank you. Um, and please don't use language that's gendered when talking to me and describing me, right? Um, so yeah, this is, this is there, there is a very serious thing happening right and the and and it, and again it's it's subtle and it's it's been going on for a long time this this narrative that trans people are inherently fill in the blank um perverted weird um uh i don't even know what other words to use because i've stopped bringing them into my lips and my and my voice and my spirit you know um but the movie disclosure which is available on netflix is a really great um, uh, deep dive into how the media has portrayed trans stories throughout time and how that's led to like a mass indoctrination that trans people are inherently fill in the blank. Um, so what does it look like, you know, similarly to like in the midst of the AIDS crisis and in the aftermath, this reclamation of the word queer, right? And gay rights and gay pride, like, what does it look like now for us to talk about trans liberation and trans justice and trans rights and trans joy and trans pride? Because we're constantly being ridiculed and we're constantly being put down and we're constantly being told we're wrong or that we don't actually exist. Right. Yeah. Wow. The whole thing around even... the, yeah. the, the, the word, the word, oh, let's debate transgenderism or let's debate non-binaryism there isn't a debate <laughs> no it's it's real like yes, it's real absolutely. because i'm here and i'm telling you like absolutely. this is my experience yeah. A absolutely. yeah absolutely absolutely yeah can i can i ask um can you talk a little bit about how we in in the yoga community as teachers and holders of space how, how can we best look after people so yeah. that they feel safe? Because that's, that's my main feeling is I'm, I, I'm getting better, but I do feel I, feel, I'm, I worry about making people mm -hmm. feel uncomfortable in my space by getting it wrong. And I know I'm not the only one. And, and when we're fearful, we end up doing nothing, actually. Mm -hmm. I think that's also what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... I'll start by saying I, I don't think that we can create safe spaces. I don't think we can guarantee safety in our spaces. We can't. Um, and this is something that I have learned through studying with Michelle and, and working with Michelle over the last many years. Um, we can create safer spaces, but to claim a space as inherently safe um, actually, actually causes more harm. Um, we don't know what every person in the space needs to feel safe. Think about like trauma-informed yoga teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Like some people want hands-on assists, some don't. It might change moment to moment. It might change day to day. The mm -hmm. same thing goes for the experience of, quote, safety. 
how am I supposed to know what every person in the space needs to feel safe and then, and then meet those needs? And what if the needs shift? Not to mention what I have witnessed and experienced even recently was the weaponization of the term safe space to um, avoid responsibility for causing harm. I thought this was a safe space. Oh, who is the safe space for? Those with the most privilege? What happens when I experience harm? What happens when someone misgenders me? What is my recourse, right? Whose needs are being centered in the space? Great, maybe it's safe for you as a quote, as a, as a, as a cisgender white middle-class woman, but is it safe for a black trans person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanna say that first. And then knowing that, um, I do think there are many things that we can do to create safer spaces. And I think it moves beyond a series of action steps, though action steps are important. Like when you move into, start a new class, say your name and say your pronouns and say why you're sharing your pronouns. That -hmm. is going to help folks in the space feel seen and potentially more welcome to be their full selves, right? Um, uh, Check in with people. If you haven't seen them in a while, or if you've forgotten what pronouns they use, or just because it's good to check in because people's pronouns change, right? That's another great thing to do. Avoid gendered language. Things like um, women might be more flexible, so you probably don't don't need to sit on a blanket for this forward fold, right? Like, what does that have to do with gender? <laughs> you know, and 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 why are we making an assumption that all of the people in the room are women um, because they quote have long hair and look like women or whatever it is? Like, there's lots of of outward action steps to consider to create safer spaces, and I want to underscore and stress that importance that you know allyship is a process and a practice. It's a verb. It requires action. Um, It's Mm -hmm. not just a passive noun. And Mm -hmm. so to me, there's something much deeper than action steps to be an ally. Mm -hmm. And that starts with not just showing up for trainings about, you know, creating safer spaces and how to create trans inclusive spaces or trans affirming spaces. The trainings are really important. Um, It's also questioning, right? And watching your mind as it tells you these stories. Um, Why do I have the experience I have of my gender? What is it that I think or feel when I come into contact with someone who's having an experience different from mine? Um, What is the assumption I'm making about the person who I'm coming into relationship with? Um, Am I slowing down, right? To, To notice that assumption, to realize that I'm making a quick assumption that this person is a girl and that they have a vagina. Like as if that means anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's none of our business what people's what what is in people's pants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there there are so many different things that we can do. But what I'm trying to reflect is the importance of understanding our own privileges, um, mm-hmm. and and how are we are privileged and more proximal to power, to ease, to access, to safety because of our identities and the way our culture is set up, which comes into play in yoga spaces, whether we like it or not, right? Um, and an easy example is like, is it wheelchair, is the yoga space wheelchair accessible? Is the bathroom wheelchair exp- accessible? Is the, is there a gender neutral bathroom, right? Is there a prompt for pronouns in your intake paperwork? Like there's so many different ways to consider who we are welcoming, who we are including in our studio space and culture and who we are inherently and subtly excluding and maybe not so subtly, right? And when we start to have that conversation 
can think about what it means to include people who have been historically and currently excluded. That sets us up for a, a, a more um, lived experience of allyship than just thinking about like, okay, well, first I ask for pronouns and then I say my pronouns and then I put my pronouns on my Zoom name and in my Instagram bio, all of those things are important, but we need to go a step farther. We need to move beyond just the outward action steps and really show up for the heart work, the internal work, the like embodied work of understanding our experiences of privilege, our experiences of marginalization, how we are upholding these and participating and perpetuating these systems that oppress and marginalize and invisibilize and exclude, right? How do we uphold and how do we challenge those in our day-to-day moment-to-moment actions as space holders and as human beings? So on some level, there's like an easy answer for you. And on some level, it's a deeper, it's a deeper answer and a deeper conversation, right? Um, and I see so many times folks show up for the trainings I teach and think, great, I'll put my pronouns here and I'll ask for pronouns here. And then they immediately start misgendering people because they're not doing the deeper work. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have to stress, like there are outward action steps and there's a lot of deeper work to do in order to show up for people who are having other experiences and identities. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I think it's really important to be reminded that we can't make a place completely safe. Yeah, That's really important. I kind of almost feel like I want everyone to stop and feel that for a second. Because interestingly, when I enter into a therapeutic relationship with somebody, or actually just even enter into any kind of relationship with someone, I try to always come from a place of no knowledge of -hmm. just being open and curious. Because I don't, I always try to think, I don't know. You know, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what your story is. Would you like to share? And, and, And knowing that that can change you know, day to day and week to week. So we like to say that, you know, our, our yoga space is safe. We hear that a lot, don't we? That's a language we, we've all used, I'm sure, at some point in the past, or at least thought it or heard it somewhere. But actually, you're absolutely spot on. We have no idea what everybody in the room needs. And just us being there in the room with them can make them feel unsafe because somebody in their life who looks like us or spoke like us or walks like us may have done something or they've witnessed something that's making them feel really unsafe. So, you know, are you speaking about this deeper internal work? That's really, this is the starting point, isn't it? To start, guess like I did at the very beginning, I noticed I felt really uncomfortable when this first all came up and I had to sit with it. Yeah. And you can't just then, you know, this is the world we're moving into and emerging into. So we've got to, we've got to continue doing that work. We've got to continue thinking and feeling and being empathetic and and I think really important is educating ourselves isn't it you know not relying on other people to tell us but to go out and seek out the knowledge as well as as well as um you know learning from other people through courses and so on Daniel I can see you want to jump in and say something I I was I was just gonna say thank you to Tristan for Mm -hmm. bringing up the 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 idea around you know, it's so it's so easy to feel like you've ticked those boxes. Like mm-hmm. you said, you've put your pronouns in certain places that are public. But fundamentally, what is that doing? What you know, what, what if you're not upholding and questioning the whole 
and dismantling the whole system that sits behind why those pronouns are even needing to be shared in the first place, you might as well not bother having them. And it's really mm. brave of people like yourself who have been damaged by the use of being misgendered and, you know, this whole system that we're within to be able to actually speak up and say, well, that's great that you're doing that, but this is how much more you need to do as a, yeah. as a cis person. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. <laughs> or, or, I mean, or as, a, as, a, as another member of the LGB, LGBTQIA community. Yes. <laughs> <Plus>. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I you know, um, we do need cisgender folks to claim their pronouns publicly um, because they're safe to, right? Like your your people are who who are cisgender are safe to claim their pronouns in front of large audiences and spaces and marketing and branding and 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 trans folks aren't right. Um, some of us are experiencing some safety around that. I feel safe to claim my pronouns publicly. That is a unique experience, and not all trans folks are having it right. And in order to make a culture shift wherein trans folks can be safer. Um, to claim who they are publicly and to, and to claim the language they want to hear publicly um, or to claim the language they want to hear, we need cis folks to show up for that process because that's how the culture shift is going to happen, right? It's not going to happen from those who are the most marginalized, though we have to do the advocating and the educating. We also need cis folks to show up and do the advocating and the educating too and the interrupting and the, and the modeling, right? That's how the culture shift is going to happen. Um, and, and I feel like, I mean, I, I have not always felt um, in, allowed or free to claim my identities publicly. I was told from a young age, like, don't talk about the fact that you're Jewish. Um, when I realized and came out as a queer person in terms of my sexual orientation, there was a lot of messaging around, like, don't, don't talk about that publicly. Um, if you're going to start a business, you certainly don't talk about your queerness and your marketing, Tristan, you know, like, what are you doing? Um, and I've had to do a lot of work to discover my voice and to say, no, I am going to claim my queerness publicly. I am going to say that I'm Jewish publicly. I, and I also, at this point in time, on some level, because of my gender experience, I don't have a choice anymore. I come out all the time when I introduce myself and I engage in a conversation with someone new. I'm constantly coming out. So there are parts of my identity that are um, hidden, right? That you can't see and that you can't know from interacting with me. And I'm going to claim my pronouns in social interactions. And that outs me every single time. So um, I feel a unique responsibility uh, in part because of my other privileges, you know, my whiteness, my able-bodiedness, my middle-classness, in part because of my other privileges, I feel a unique responsibility to claim my identities publicly, to claim my both my privileged identities and my marginalized identities publicly. Um, I also feel a unique responsibility to um, educate and advocate and interrupt because for whatever reason, it comes somewhat naturally to me. Like I didn't um, set out to educate professionally about these topics. I found myself just doing it in social situations with friends. In retrospect, I recognized that that was a lot of labor on my part that I didn't necessarily owe anybody, right? Um, 
And it was, and it was at a cost to me to constantly have to contend with questions about gender identity and sexual orientation. Like there was a cost to me to, to, to educate and, and advocate over and over and over again in social situations. And I am constantly learning how do I care for myself so I can keep showing up to do so? Um, and do I wanna keep showing up to do so? Like that is a question I have to sit with all the time. Right. Fortunately, I have other facets of my work that nourish me and pay the bills. So it's not like I'm constantly just educating people about transgender identity and experiences. Um, and that is a part of my work. And I'm constantly in inquiry about whether or not I want it to continue to be because it comes at such an expense for me. Right. Um, so I, I want to name all of that, that I feel both um, uh, a, a, a unique responsibility to do so. And also I owe no one this labor at the same time. So how can I get resource to keep doing it? And how can I be in a constant practice of questioning whether or not I want to keep doing it? Because I don't owe it to anybody. Um, it's not fair for me to have to move through the world constantly educating and informing people. Um, and I do it for all the reasons I've explained. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's not always easy. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to thank you for doing it, Tristan. I think I think you're incredible. And I'm really glad to hear that you are taking care of yourself in amongst all of that incredible kindness that you are displaying by sharing and educating and really in a really kind way. I mean, you've really educated me already. I can think about five things already. I think, crikes, I need to think about that more deeply. Um, and I just feel really grateful that you, you are... There are people like you who are out in the world that are there to, sh to share this wisdom with us. And, uh, you know, in, in our community, I hope that we all can take pause in our little in-between space right now and, and, and think about, you know, that this is an opportunity for us to become more kind to each other. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like, I don't know what you guys feel like, if we can really address this issue in our hearts it will if we it, it will it kind of opens up everything it feels like a window to everything to me because if we can really accept people for who they are and love them fully and give them the freedom and own our own privilege then that changes everything potentially everything will be deconstructed from that from I, that place i think that that is true and the the truth is we're having you know i'm thinking of michelle's work and i i want to I, I won't go down that path michelle educates on on race and the construct of race and i i want to bring that in because part of what i hear you saying don is let's interrupt the socio-cultural socio-personal dynamics that are going on here we also have to interrupt the systemic dynamics right so mm -hmm. so yes it, it can change everything for us to open our hearts and educate ourselves and um, mm -hmm. notice our discomfort and turn towards it right and it also mm -hmm. won't change everything because what we really need is for trans folks to be able to use bathrooms um, what we really need are for trans folks to stop being murdered simply because they're trans. What we really need yeah. is for um, trans folks, trans kids to be protected and cared for medically, culturally, personally, and socially. And we need trans kids to be able to play sports on teams that they want to play on. So yeah. 
we do need to open our hearts and we need widespread institutional culture shift. And there are times when I feel optimistic and like we're fighting the good fight. um, And there are times where I feel like we're never going to get there. Um, and it's, it's, yeah. it's hard and it's devastating. And the planet is, is in decay. So like, am I going to see this in my lifetime? Probably mm-hmm. not. And right. that's heartbreaking. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean I stop. Right. Um, and yeah. I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice because this is my experience. This is my gender. And mm-hmm. cis folks have a choice. Mm-hmm. Cisgender individuals have a choice that they have to make, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about the, the lens of gender. And, you know, as a white mm-hmm. person, I have a choice I have to make when it comes to the work of anti-racism. And I want to make that choice every single moment as much as I can every day. Mm-hmm. We all have a choice to contend with, given the way we might hold privilege. Um, and it yeah. is so much um, personal and heart work and, and in the, you know, individual to individual. And there's, there, there's this deeper truth that we have to challenge too, which is people who hold power and create these systems and design these laws and make legislation and, and decide on court cases. We need to get them on board too. And those are the folks that I'm most concerned are, we're never going to bring in, you know? Yeah. I so, I so, I so agree with you. And I think just to clarify, I'm nowhere near as eloquent as you, clearly. I think it has to start with ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have to make peace and un- to have an understanding and wisdom before we can step into the space where we start challenging yeah. sy- what is systemically wrong. And I think for me, my yoga is more about the yoga of action than the mm-hmm. yoga of the mat. It's very yeah. much so and has been for a long time. So I, I try really hard to educate myself and, and find a place of understanding and wisdom and peace so I'm always learning and then challenging what I see moment to moment in society by calling out, by the choices that I make, by the way I vote, by where I put my money, where I don't put my money. Yeah. Um, it, I remember with my husband, you know, where we had we've had some really horrific um, murders in this country, violent murders towards women. And it really kicked up a huge wave of um discussion amongst everybody around how women were treated and i mean we're speaking about women i know it happens to everybody but i'm talking about this Mm -hmm. specific situation and and my i said to my husband i said i've spent an awful long time just saying i'm not going to be with those people if they're Mm -hmm. sexist right uh, you know anti-feminist if they make derogatory jokes and I said to my husband after, I said, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to call them out. Mm. And that was hard. I cannot tell you how hard that's been yeah. and how many dinner dinners we've stopped being invited to and <laughs> how many people we choose now not to be around. And, and my husband did the same thing and he took him a little bit longer, but he started doing it. And he, he was mortified by how few people responded favorably or responded at all. Yeah. You know, the deafening silence that fell upon us. But for me, Yoga is about action and it's dead without it. It's like, it's like a little ornament you put on your shelf. doesn't mean anything. Looks yeah. pretty. doesn't actually have add anything to your life or make any change in society whatsoever. Daniel, please jump in. I know you want to say something. I was just going to say about 
that's those situations with those women that were murdered. I think you're really right what you said. Lots of people talked. However, I would really question how many men really looked at the way that they thought about women, spoke about women, projected stuff onto women that they have relationships with that is violent or sexualized in some way. Yeah. The blame is always on the other person, isn't it? Oh, she was wearing a short dress. She shouldn't have been walking home at night. She shouldn't have been on her own. Why was she out late? She was black. She was this. She was that. No one turns around and says, well, what was going on with that person who clearly was violent towards somebody else? Yeah. And this is the whole thing, isn't it? Is from that point of privilege, therefore male, cis males being the, the, the privileged in that situation, they're going to be, you know, oh, tell your daughter to take a torch out or make sure you've got your phone or, you know, not actually looking, like you've said, Dawn, at what is really going on. How are people communicating? How are these micro and very significant aggressions happening yeah. all the mm -hmm. time around all of us? And the only mm -hmm. way we start to change that is as exactly how we've said to start calling it out, calling it out. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were at a party recently with some friends and the transgender issue came up. And my husband had said to me before we went, he said, I think this may come into conversation because the group that we were at. And I was dreading. He said, what are you going to say? And I said, are you seriously asking me? I said, I will call them out. I said, and we did, and it was really interesting because when it dropped into the conversation, I could feel like my heart just racing, and I just, I kind of literally could almost not breathe, and I knew I had to say something, yeah. and my husband, he kind of looked at me, and <laughs> I think he thought I was gonna like literally lose my shit, and I didn't, and I, I we. And what turned out to be was just an incredibly insightful and really respectful conversation amongst a group of people who are all white privileged, all all um, cisgender, and you know had had not encountered this in their life, so they didn't understand. And so we really looked at it from a place of curiosity, and that was that was allowed it to be a respectful conversation. And then later the next day, I shared a look with one of the people from the dinner party, and they really appreciated the and their content and the wisdom and the historical references and the research and I just thought this is the way to go but you know my reason I'm saying is I it doesn't you know it didn't actually affect me I'm not the person that this is directed at and it was freaking painful just to be in an uncomfortable conversation because I was so pissed off that we're having to have this conversation at all because I feel like we should be beyond this at this day and age, really. Are we not? Imagine <laughs> that's the thing, not. but we're not. Yeah, because yeah. cisgender people generally gather their information from multimedia platforms who are feeding this rhetoric about marginalized people. Mm -hmm. so that story is never going to change because at the top the story is still being very loud <laughs> and, it, so, and, it's, know, and it's taking people like 
Tristan and, and, and many other people who have got the confidence to be able to speak up and to have a voice to start to slowly infiltrate those places, which is why social media is so amazing for this stuff because it's, it's dangerously unfiltered (laughs) (laughs) in a positive way and in a really negative way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. We wouldn't be having this conversation on Twitter. (laughs) I'm not even on Twitter for that reason. Oh my goodness. I'm just thinking as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, you know, society has done a bloody good job putting people in boxes Mm -hmm. and through capitalism and fashion and literature and all the rest of it so we have a responsibility now for those same institutions to start doing something different so for instance in the yoga world to start showing people that look all different ways just just that in itself is going to be important I feel yeah you know by, yeah, by, by, by yoga platforms being given to indigenous people. Yes. <laughs> Trans people. Mm-hmm. By, you know, allowing people to, who are marginalized to be the ones that are in charge of these organizations and mm-hmm. corporations, because then it would look vastly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. There's so much to say, <laughs> so much to say. Tristan, I'm really aware that we're taking up so much of your time and I want to just give you an opportunity. Is there anything you would like to share that you haven't had an opportunity to up to this point? Sure, thank you. Um, I think I've alluded to this, but I'll, I'll make it very clear. I, I do offer this work uh, professionally. I, I teach workshops and trainings on um, transgender awareness and creating um, spaces that are affirming and welcoming for trans folks. Um, and, and that work is needed. Uh, and I, I, I do more than that. Um, and uh, I, I want to name that too. <laughs> um, I, I also teach uh, workshops, trainings, and mentorship programs on how to bring yoga and social justice into marketing. Um, so, you know, my background, I've been in marketing for, um, more than 15 years now and, uh, found over the last many years, the more I study social justice, the more I've studied with Michelle, the more I've studied with other, um, incredible anti-racism educators. Um, and the more I've discovered myself, um, and, and disability justice and all the ways that people are having other experiences than my own, um, the more I've started to understand that we can't. Um, take up space in our marketing and in our business growth without talking about these truths. Um, And so whenever we do take up space without talking about them, without having an understanding of these truths, we are potentially perpetuating systems of oppression and we are potentially causing harm to individuals. And so to me, first of all, yoga teachers are entrepreneurs. Um, That is like kind of a truth of of the nature of being a yoga teacher. Um, And uh, yoga teachers have a unique responsibility given the teachings of yoga um, to orient towards these truths and to understand how to bring these values that are aligned with yoga, that are aligned with justice into um, public facing branding and marketing and and websites and newsletters and social media. And I think so much about certain moments, you know, where um, 
for example, when George Floyd was murdered in, in spring of 2020, that was not a time for me as a white person to post a selfie of me and my dog at the beach, right? Um, that was a time for me to, to pause my marketing or um, not launch the next training or not talk about something that was on my mind around, you know, whatever that didn't have to do with, with justice and racism. Um, so there are these moments where we have to attune to the collective consciousness and the collective experience. Um, you know, COVID starting was another moment. Like when we went into quarantine, that wasn't a time for me to be like, come to my workshop in person next week, woo! Or, you know, um, or even like, to me, we were all traumatized, right? Mm. We were all going through like a huge trauma. Yoga is uniquely needed in those moments, but how can we share the teachings and the spaces and the practice communities of yoga without ignoring the trauma, with pretending that it's not happening, right? We have to acknowledge what's happening. Um, and I believe we have to do that in our marketing. And so that is another facet of my work is bridging yoga and social justice in business growth. Um, and I, I do that through through classes and trainings, and I lead twice yearly mentorship programs, um, mainly for yoga professionals, but also for anybody who holds healing space and is in the wellness industry. Um, and that's mm -hmm. the way, you know, my equity inclusion facilitation shows up is, is through trans liberation, trans justice, trans awareness education, and then through justice oriented marketing um, education. And I, I just want to name all of that so that folks can connect with me in my work, but also understand that I, I'm more than a trans person educating people about my own experience and advocating for trans justice, right? Um, I, we are all more than our, our identities and our identities are impacting how we move through the world. And when we um, kind of uh, focus on someone who's having an experience of marginalization or oppression through that specific lens, we lose sight of the full human who is so much more than that, right? Um, so I, I want to name that because I know that this conversation, which has been so beautiful um, and so moving and so important, has focused so much on essentially my gender experience and my advocating <laughs> for others who are having non-traditional, non-cisgender experiences, right? Um, and I think it's important that I name and celebrate and bring in the other parts of myself and my work. So <laughs> thank you for asking me to, to do so, Dawn, in the way that you did. Oh, thank you for sharing. And we will put in the show notes and ways to get a hold of you and all of your various different um, social media and your website and so on so that people can um, reach out. I think it's really important. You know, we speak about social justice and taking action. We, we got to we got to put some effort into it. We can't bluff it. You know, we've really got to understand fully and be truly inclusive. We just did. I have another small business. It's uh, like a therapy center. And um, we have yeah, a team of sort of 12 to 15 therapists all work together. And we were doing our marketing document a couple of weeks ago. And we were looking, we sent out some stuff for everybody to read and sort of to make sure it felt inclusive. And we all came back and said, we need some education around inclusivity. Mm -hmm. I said, we all said this. We all said, we, we aren't inclusive enough because every single person in the room is white, is middle class, because generally middle-class people are the people that can afford to go and do these extremely expensive trainings that allow you to be a therapist. 
And nobody in the room, as far as we were aware, is anything other than cisgendered. Yeah. And it was a really interesting. We said, and I said, I'm sure we're going to be speaking to somebody quite soon. <laughs> Meaning you. I said, I'll find out if they do something like that. So we, so we will certainly be in touch. And I'm sure, you know, for anybody who's listening, wherever you are in the world, you know, we have a worldwide listenership, which is wonderful. You know, do take pause and, you know, you can be so much part of, you know, your own personal internal change and society change by just putting a little bit of effort into your own learning. So I really hope that people do reach out, Tristan. I'm sure they'll be very blessed if they, if they, um, if they do work with you. Thank you, Don. You were so welcome. Daniel, do you want to do you want to finish up? I just want to say thank you to Tristan. It's just been yeah. I just yeah, every time we have these conversations, particularly mm. for me with other LGBTQIA plus people, it just feels like oh, it just feels like part of coming home, part of a community. <laughs> And just being able to, you know, we've all had such different experiences, but collectively, actually, that responsibility that we have for each other and just how how franchised that and um, franchise fractured the the, yeah. the LGBTQIA plus community can be. It just is so heartwarming for me to hear this and just yeah, heals me from the inside. So thank you, Tristan. Mm. Thank mm. you. So thank much. you. It heals me too. You know, I I I our our culture and world would have us keep ourselves small and and stay quiet and keep ourselves in little boxes that are you know very clear and neat and i think that um we need to come together with other folks who are breaking down the boxes um and who are taking up the space and who are healing those wounds and say like i see you you are welcome i appreciate you all of you is welcome you are valid you are worthy um and it's it is it's so important in a world that tells us that we don't exist or that we can't exist or that we can't find love or or acceptance or belonging right um so absolutely. thank you thank absolutely. you both absolutely yeah. yeah so so yeah you know i couldn't have said it better myself mm. thank you Thank you, Thank Tristan. You. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for Dawn for asking such wonderful questions as well. Um, we're really grateful for you, the listener, for, for listening to the end of this podcast. And if you do have any feedback, if you'd like to share anything, have any reflections, then please do let us know. If you'd like to leave us a review, whether that's a positive or negative one, please do head over to the Apple Podcasts app and you can leave that there. But until next time, thank you, Tristan. Thank you, Dawn. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>